Today I want to talk to you about arrivals. Arrivals. Some of you are Amazon junkies. We have a special 12-step support recovery group for you to try to get you off of your Amazon uh, addiction. But isn't it true that when you order a package and it says three-day delivery, or if you're Amazon Prime, free delivery, that it says in 24 hours, and you're already 12 hours into it, checking your front door, is it there? Is it there? Is it coming? Two reasons you're checking. One, to make sure it's there. Number two, make sure a neighbor doesn't take it. But if it's only a few hours later, you're like, what's going on? Is this happening? And it, you go into sort of this little fit of rage, like my package, where is it? Because you're a bit of an Amazon junkie waiting for arrivals. It's difficult to wait, isn't it? When you have an expectation that something is coming. You have this anticipation that it's around the corner. You know that it's coming, but waiting is difficult for that arrival. I'll never forget when I first uh, started here pastoring at the church. I was 21 years old, and we were growing, got married, and uh, my wife and I were super busy. But soon after getting married, we started, a couple years into uh, being married, we started thinking it would be nice to have a child, a baby, my wife more than I. And she, about three years into it, she was like, I really want a baby. I said, hey, I'm trying. I'd be happy to participate. But the baby just was not coming. And so we kept praying, kept believing. And uh, finally, she was like, let's just have the elders pray for us. So we actually had our elder team come and lay hands on us. And we said, we desire a baby. The baby's not coming. Would you pray for us? And about three weeks later, we found out she was pregnant. Yeah. And so then the clock starts ticking. People start asking you, when are you due? Why? Because there's an arrival date that you are anticipating. There's an arrival. This, this package, so to speak, is going to change your life. Nine months later, and so we prepared for it. Um, back in the day, I actually went to a class with my wife in preparation for that arrival. It was called the Lamaze class. And we actually, I was like, hey, is this necessary? I'm not going to deliver the baby. Isn't there a doctor going to be there? Why do I have to go through the class? She said, come on. So I went, and we're actually acting, you know, they give me a little doll, and so I'm acting like I'm bringing the doll out and how to hold it. And at the end of this course, I got a T-shirt that said coach. So when the day came, she started having contractions. I was like, put on my coach t-shirt. Don't worry, babe, I got it. I'm a coach. <laughs> I've been to three hours of classes. I know how to handle a pregnancy. And so I was rubbing her back, doing all the things they taught me to do, thinking we're okay. I was in the living room. She was in the bedroom, sort of getting her stuff together. And then I heard this scream come from the bedroom. And I said, honey, are you okay? She said, no. I said, what's going on? She said, I think I broke my back. I said, no, it's just contraction. She said, I think I broke my back. And I said, maybe you did. <laughs> she was having back labor. 
So then we got in the car and we're rushing to get down to Apprentice Hospital downtown for the birth of our baby. My dad is driving. He's real happy. He can go through red uh, stop signs and speed a little bit. I'm in the back. She's going through contraction. She's crying. She's holding my hand. She's looking at me. She's leaving her fingernail prints in my hands very deeply. And she looks at me and she says, Mark, why is God letting this happen to me? I wanted to say we prayed about it for a couple of years. It's an answer to prayer. The theologian part of me wanted to say, well, you know, back in Genesis, the curse was that you'd have uh, pain and child. But I looked at her and common sense got a hold of me and I said, I don't know why he's letting this happen to you. We got to the hospital, went up there. I thought a baby was coming right away. I'm like, hey, is the baby coming? 28 hours later. That's a lot of pushing. But when the baby arrived, we thought it was a, a boy. They had kind of told us it was a boy. We wanted to be surprised. And lo and behold, it was my daughter Marissa. But when the arrival came, I remember holding that baby and thinking, wow, this is what we've prayed for, longed for. This is a beautiful arrival. Arrivals aren't always easy. It's difficult if you're in a waiting period right now and you have this sense that an answer to prayer is coming. If you have a sense that God has a plan that hasn't yet manifested itself and you're in the middle of waiting, it may be a job, it may be a spouse, it may be a a change of some sort, but you're in the middle of waiting, you, kept, you keep checking and it feels like the arrival is not coming, it can be difficult, it tests your patience, but here's what I want you to know today. I want you to know that God has a master plan. And although you may not see the arrival, God has known way in advance the perfect timing. I want to apply that a little bit to the Christmas message because I do believe that some of us don't fully grasp what we celebrate on December 25th. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that by and large, as Americans, we celebrate a fairly shallow version of Christmas. In fact, I would dare to say even as believers, we, we don't fully understand or grasp God's master plan when it comes to Christmas. And I want to talk to you a little bit about God's master plan in when it comes to arrival because I, I'm not even sure a lot of us as believers even understand the depth, the power, the planning, the significance of what happened in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. So I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city of Galatia, and the book happens to be the book of Galatians. In chapter 4, he turns their attention to, well, he turns their attention to the reason that Jesus came. And I want you to notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son." born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, get this, the adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, so that you know are, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As it relates to Christmas story, I want you to see the bigger picture of God's master plan because we miss it. And so as you think of God's master plan, I'm going to jump through a lot of scripture here. Hold on, I'm going to go fast and furious, so tighten your belt because this is not going to be a nice little sprinkly feel-good message. We're going, to go through some, uh, we're going to go through some theology here. By the way, theology is the study of God, and I think you need to get the study of God right to understand the Christmas message. Are you with me today? Okay. All right. Let's talk about God's master timing first. In God's master plan, there is God's master timing. The first phrase of Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come. When the proper time was there. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus can't come 2,000 years ago when he came? Our calendar is based on the coming of Jesus. There is B.C. and there is A.D. Marked by this significant event that altered our calendar, the birth of Jesus. Why didn't Jesus come 4,000 years ago? Why didn't Jesus come 100 years ago? Hey, why didn't Jesus come last year or this year? Why was it 2,000 years ago that Jesus came? Let me look, take a look at that for a moment because I believe it refers to God's master plan. In the Greek, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. It says, but when the fullness of chronos is the word used in the Greek. When the fullness of time, that word time is uh, the word chronos in the Greek. There's two words in the Greek to describe time. There's the word kairos, and there's the word chronos. Kairos has to do with the moment, a window of opportunity that opens and closes. In other words, hey, this is the opportune moment. Chronos, we get our word chronology from that. Our calendar is based on it. It's a sequential event of dates. In other words, when the fullness of chronology had come, meaning that God, this was not a window that God chose to jump through. This was a pre-planned event in God's calendar. When the months and years had come, when the days and hours had come, when the pre-planned time in God's calendar finally arrived, that's what it's telling us, when the fullness of time of Kronos had come, then God sent his son. Now, when you talk about fullness, when the perfect or the complete time had come, you have to ask yourself, well, why was that the perfect timing? And I don't have a lot of time to get into it in this message, but theologians, historians, and scholars basically believe that this was the ideal time for the coming of Jesus because of three important factors, Roman peace, Greek language, and Hebrew prophecy. Those of you that know a little bit about history know that the Roman Empire 
ruled the world for almost 900 years. During that time, what the Romans would do, they would go and conquer areas of the world led by the emperor who had a lot of power in those days. They would conquer areas of the world and they would establish their dominance, but they would let those people more or less rule themselves. That's what happened during the times of Jesus. Do you remember that when they wanted to crucify Jesus, they had to go to whom? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor assigned to oversee the area of Judea. They couldn't just go to the uh, Jewish rulers. They had to go to the Roman emissary that was there to get uh, full permission to crucify Jesus because Rome conquered the world. Now, but the other thing that Rome did is that everywhere that Rome did, went, they built roads. Have you ever heard the expression, every road leads to Rome? Well, that's an old uh, saying because the Romans built roads all over their known empire. I grew up in Spain, and there are many, many bridges, aqueducts, roads that they'll say, hey, this was built by the Romans 800 years ago, 900 years ago. And so we still have bridges that were built by the Romans. The Romans were master engineers in building a road system that made the early world a place where things could travel fairly peacefully around the world. That was new, which allowed the coming of Jesus during that time when Jesus came and spread the gospel of the good news. All his apostles and early followers were able to go all over the world much more freely to spread the good news because there was Roman peace and a Roman system. Secondly, uh, scholars point to the fact that Jesus came during that time because of the Greek language. Some of you have heard of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great basically conquered the world before the Romans did and did, I'm getting into some history here, he Hellenized the world, which means that he brought the Greek culture to the world and in particular the Greek language. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament was written in Greek? Uh, once in a while, you'll hear me say, the Greek language says, and I'm referring to the Greek language, not Greece, uh, as in we know the country of Greece. This is classical Greek, but the, the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, were written in the Greek language because the Greek classical language in that day was the language of the empire. It was pretty much the trade language, even if you weren't Roman, or even if you weren't part of the uh, Greek culture, you understood Greek like a lot of people understand English today. So when the gospel spread in the early days, there was a common language that pretty much everybody understood. It was classical Greek. So you have the Roman peace, you have the Greek language, and thirdly, you have Hebrew prophecy. Some of you may or may not know this, but... When Jesus came, people were anticipating a Messiah. Why? Because there had been prophecy after prophecy after prophecy pointing to the coming of a Messiah. In fact, the Jewish people were even more 
in greater anticipation of a Jewish Messiah because they were being oppressed by the Romans and they thought that the Messiah would liberate them from the Romans and establish a kingdom here on earth, but instead the Messiah was about to establish a spiritual kingdom. But do you realize that there is hundreds, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting the coming of Jesus? Daniel, for example, 500 years before Jesus is born, predicts the time, the exact time, of the birth of the Messiah. 500 years. There's a counting. You can read it in the book of Daniel, 70 days this, these kind of weeks, this many years. And it predicts the exact timing of the coming of the Messiah. So there was an awareness in the Hebrew culture that the Messiah is coming and it's going to be pretty soon. Greek peace, a Greek language, Roman peace, Hebrew prophecy. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. This is just from a human perspective and a scholarly perspective looking at why Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But what the Bible does tell us is that his birth was pre-planned from the beginning of creation. Hear me well. You say, well, some people say, well, the New Testament talks about Jesus, but the Old Testament doesn't talk about Jesus, right? Oh, no, you're wrong. The Old Testament is full of predictions that a Messiah is coming. The date, the place, the lineage, the name, it's found in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus came. The very first mention of Jesus or a Savior coming it's kind of coded and hidden a little bit in language, but it's very clear that it's speaking about Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, listen, it says God speaking or the angel speaking to the serpent, Satan, says, and I will put enmity, which means I will put an adversarial relationship between you, listen, and the woman. What woman? And between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What woman? And who is it that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Aha. He doesn't say and you and the seed of man. He says, you and the woman. Well, there was one man that was born of only a woman, bypassing the seed of a man. You see, the bloodline is determined through the male, and this woman conceived a child without the intervention or interaction or sexual intercourse with a man. Isaiah would go on to explain it later on. And this man that was born only of a woman, not of a man, would end up crushing the head of the serpent. Oh, the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. A prediction of Jesus. Way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, it was Isaiah the prophet, a few hundred years later, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. How many years? 700 years before Jesus is born. The prophet Isaiah 
Filled with the Spirit, a divine revelation came over him. Inspired by the Spirit of God. Man couldn't have revealed this. He couldn't have conceived of this. But inspired by the Spirit, this vision that came upon him, Isaiah says, listen. Isaiah says, and the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. 700 years before Jesus was born, 700 years before people were talking about it, 700 years before the Roman Empire was even conquering the world, 700 years before Isaiah has this vision, this prophetic insight, this inspired by God, and he says there'll be a virgin, and she'll give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see, what I want you to understand is that the birth of Jesus was not the birth of a Galilean peasant that happened to give inspirational words to an oppressed people who never traveled 60 miles from his birthplace. No, the birth of Jesus, the, the Messiah, the one that would be called Emmanuel, it was pre-planned from before the creation of the world. It was predicted. There were signs. There was elements cast in our way. There were subtle hints. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The arrival is coming. You say, well, Pastor, show me a little bit more in Scripture. Oh, you ready? I'm glad you ask. <laughs> so I'm going to take you through a quick walk through the Old Testament. Some of you know some of the books of the Old Testament. Some of you don't. But let me take you a quick, just a quick walk. And I'm skipping over a lot, but just so that you know that Jesus is mentioned, pointed to, subtly thrown out there Thousands of years, at least 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, he's being talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, I already read you Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Exodus, we find the story of the Passover lamb. And Christ is the sacrificial lamb given for us. The Passover, when the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt and set free... And they are instructed, take a lamb without blemish that has no spot or wrinkle. Kill the lamb and put the blood up over your household and the angel of death will pass over you. That's called the Passover. A thousand six hundred years before the birth of Jesus, they're pointing to a man will come that will live a perfect life. His blood will be splattered for us, and when it's placed upon us, the wrath of God will pass over our lives. Jesus the Messiah. In Leviticus, we read that the, that the high priests were making sacrifice for the people, and Christ became the high priest making the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. In Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied of a prophet who would come that would be greater than himself, referring to Jesus Christ, the great prophet. In the book of Joshua, Joshua met the captain of the Lord's host, that is Jesus the Christ. In Judges, the leaders were judges who delivered people, each of them typifying the deliverance that Jesus the Christ would bring about. In the book of Ruth, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, he redeemed Ruth's inheritance. It's a picture of Christ written 900 years before Jesus the Christ would come. David, the anointed one, pictures Jesus and is described as being the son 
of David in the Psalms. In 2 Samuel, when the king is being enthroned, the entire scene is descriptive of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Kings, it speaks of the glorious God filling the temple, and Chronicles describes the glorious coming of the king, both referring to Jesus, king of kings. Ezra depicts Jesus as the Lord of our fathers. Esther offers a picture of Christ interceding for his people. Job, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, no, just kidding, I don't know if he was, Job says clearly that the Redeemer is coming 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Job is saying, the Redeemer is coming. The Redeemer is coming. What, what does a Redeemer mean? The one who will buy back. The one who will purchase his people. The Redeemer is coming. 2,000 years before the coming of Christ, he's whispering, the Redeemer is coming. A day will come when the Redeemer will show up. In, in the Psalms, Christ appears time after time, including when David describes him as the shepherd. Isaiah details the glorious birth 700 years before the birth of Jesus. I, I already read this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. And will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jeremiah reveals that he will be acquainted with sorrows. In Daniel, he appears with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace as the fourth man. What, the Scot what theologians call a theophany, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Daniel depicts exactly the time and the moment that Jesus will be born 500 years before his birth. Joel describes him as the hope of his people. Amos tells that Jesus is the judge of all nations. Obadiah warns of the coming of the eternal kingdom. Jonah offers a picture of Jesus being dead for three days as he was in the belly of the whale for three days and then spit out on the shore and, and tells us that a day will come where Jesus will be buried and resurrected on the third day. Zephaniah says that he will be the king over all Israel. Zacharias is the prophet who speaks of Jesus riding on a colt as he entered into Jerusalem. Malachi, or some of my Hispanic friends say Malachi, is the one who calls him the son of righteousness. That was 420 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. 300 prophecies. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Get ready for the arrival. Emmanuel, Bethlehem, son of David, redeemer, liberator. Messiah, he's coming, he's coming. All of Israel had this expectation, one day the Messiah will come. They didn't know who, when, or how. They didn't know where we would come from. They didn't know what he would look like, but they knew that he was coming. It had been predicted, prophesied, pointed to. In fact, the town of his birth had been described hundreds of years in advance as this tiny, unknown outpost called Bethlehem. In the New Testament, a relative of a young girl named Mary, Mary had had this extraordinary experience where, she, where an angel had shown up and had told her that she was chosen, that she would be the one that she would carry within her womb 
one that we'd be the Messiah. She didn't quite understand how it would be or what it would look like. She was engaged to be married but had had no relationship with the man and suddenly she found herself pregnant. She goes to meet her relative Elizabeth who's also pregnant and little did she know that Elizabeth was pregnant with Jesus' second cousin called John the Baptizer. When these two pregnant women meet, their bellies bumping up against each other. You ever tried to have two pregnant women hug each other? It's a little bit difficult. It's sort of the side hug. The Bible says that John the baptizer in the womb of his mother jumps because he's in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah. And then on that day, all of heaven held its breath. The world went on like although nothing was extraordinary was happening. In Bethlehem, people were signing up for taxes. There was noise and congestion and people walking around. But all heaven stood still. The angels held their breath. All this was the pinnacle of thousands of years of prophecy. Something extraordinary was about to happen. Something that would change the course of humanity. Something that would alter the destiny of millions of people. Yes, it was God. God himself being incarnate as a baby. The God of the universe, the almighty God, the God with no beginning, no ending, the eternal I am, the Logos, the God that is sovereign, the God that knows all things, the God that is omnipresent, the God that is omnipotent, suddenly, suddenly packaging himself as a fetus. Never before in the history of humanity. And John 1.14 says, And the Word, the Logos, Jesus, became human and lived here with us. We saw His true glory, the glory of the Son of the Father. From Him all kindness and all truth of God have come down to us. The timing of God. But in God's master plan is not only the timing... It's also the prediction. And I want to talk to you about the prediction and the preparation. Listen, it says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law. I don't have time to go verse by verse through this because it would take us hours to do so. There's about 300 prophecies that refer to Jesus coming. But you say, what are in those prophecies and how detailed do they get? Well, I'm just going to give you about 40 of those prophecies in staccato format here. Are you ready? The prophecies about Jesus, hundreds of years, all these hundreds of years before he was born, tell us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus would be born of a virgin. Jesus would come from the line of Abraham. Jesus would be the descendant of Isaac. Jesus would be the descendant of Jacob. Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. These prophecies hundreds of years before tell us that Jesus would be the heir of King David's throne. God spoke to David and he said, Hey, David, I'm going to give you a kingdom that will be everlasting. Everlasting kingdom. 
And Jesus was born through the lineage of David, and we call Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords because his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. He reigns not on a kingdom on earth, but he reigns in a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom, and it was predicted hundreds of years before. It tells us that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. Jesus would spend a season in Egypt. Do you remember? Egypt is in northern Africa, and when the killing of the children happened, Joseph and Mary fled from Israel to northern Africa, a place called Egypt, and he was there for some time before returning back to Israel. It tells us that Jesus would be declared the Son of God. It tells us that he would be called the Nazarene because he grew up in the area of Nazareth. It tells us that he would bring to light Galilee. Jesus would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. It's prophesied that a massacre of children would happen at a Messiah's birthplace. The Magi came, they showed up to King Herod, and they said, where is the king that is born? And King Herod said, what king are you talking about? They said, we've seen it in the stars, it's been prophesied about. He says, tell me where that's at, because I want to eliminate my rival. And then he killed every child that was two years old and under. It was prophesied hundreds of years before that there would be a massacre of children. The wailing, would, the wailing mothers would come out at the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. A messenger would prepare the way of the Messiah called John the Baptizer. Jesus Price. Money would be used to buy a potter's field. It was prophesied that Jesus would be falsely accused, that Jesus would be silent before the accusers, that Jesus would be spat upon and struck, that Jesus would be hated without a cause, that Jesus would be crucified with criminals, that Jesus would be given vinegar to drink, and he was on the cross given vinegar to drink, prophesied hundreds of years before that vinegar, even what he drank, would, be, would come true. It's prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced, that Jesus would be mocked and ridiculed, that Jesus' bones would not be broken, that Jesus would pray for his enemies, that soldiers would pierce the Messiah's side, that Jesus would be buried with the rich, that Jesus would resurrect from the dead, that Jesus would ascend to heaven, that Jesus would be seated at the God, God's right hand, and that Jesus would be a sacrifice for our sins. All prophesied. Hundreds of years before he came. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. I like the way that Max Lucado in his book, God Came Near, describes the coming of Jesus. Many of us have a manger scene in our homes, or maybe you have one lit up in front of your house. There's always a baby Jesus. In some church instances, the baby Jesus is stolen as a prank. I heard of one church that they kept stealing baby Jesus, so they put a GPS in baby Jesus. <laughs> and put some cameras out in front of the church. Imagine someone showing up at your house and saying, hey, is Jesus here? 
But what we fail to realize is the significance of that baby Jesus. We fail to understand always the spiritual, prolific, and profound implications of the God-man. Max Lucado says this, that particular moment was like no other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became man. While the creatures of the earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself up and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He, who had been a spirit, now was pierceable. He, who was larger than the universe, became an embryo. And he who sustained the world with a word chose to become dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Imagine that. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. Emmanuel. God with us. Imagine that. Now you know why heaven held their breath. Now you know why it's the pinnacle of our calendar year, why there's a before and why there's an after. I want you to understand the significance of it because I believe that oftentimes our Christmas is so shallow. We see the picture of Jesus in the womb, and he's Diosito that we pray to. But let me tell you, he's much more than Diosito. He's the almighty, omnipotent God of the universe that has always been, that will always be, the God that has no limit to his power. And lastly, I want you just, with the few minutes that we have here, I want to just talk to you about why he came, his adoption plan. The Bible tells us that, yeah, in the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those that were under the law. And then he tells us the reason. He says, so that we might receive the adoptions of sons, sons and daughters, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? No, it's not the name of a band in the 70s. No, it's much more than that. Abba, hey, Abba is a word that comes from the Aramaic. The Old Testament is in Hebrew and Aramaic. The Aramaic word, it's an intimate word associated with the Father. Simply, Daddy. Jesus came so that you and I would no longer just be creations of God, slaves to sin, under the law, 
but though that we would be liberated from the condemnation that was over us because we could not measure and attain to that level of perfection so that our guilt would be wiped away and now we would go from created beings to sons and daughters adopted by the Most High God. Oh, this is powerful. Don't miss it. You say, well, Pastor, I thought that we're all sons and daughters of God. No, we're not. We are all God's creation, but there are only certain people that are sons and daughters, those who have been born again. The Bible tells us that if you're born again, the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 refers to Jesus by an interesting title. It says, for those who God foreknew, which means he knew in advance, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, referring to Jesus, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Listen, Jesus was sinless and righteous before the Father as a human being. The first in all of creation to be righteous before the Father. But there are many brothers and sisters that follow Jesus because of the sacrifice of Jesus. What Jesus did made a way for the Father. The, the, the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, indicating that there is now no partition between the Holy of Holies and the regular people, that now we have access to God through what Jesus has done for us. This is huge. He's called the firstborn among many brethren, but he's called much more than that. You can't understand the Christmas story unless you understand who Jesus is. We've downplayed Jesus. We've minimized Jesus. We haven't understood the breadth and significance and power of Jesus. But it's all about Jesus. The centrality of the Christian message is who Jesus is. Oh, here's just some words that refer to Jesus. The Bible says he's the Almighty One. In Revelation chapter 1, it says who is, who was, and who is to come. And you say, how do you know he's referring about Jesus? Because it says he was dead and now he's alive. Who was dead and who's alive? Jesus the Christ. What is he called? The Almighty One. Equal with the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It tells us that he is Alpha and Omega in Revelation chapter 22. He's called the Advocate, which means he's the counselor interceding for us day and night on our behalf before the Father because of his righteousness. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews chapter 12 says. He is the authority, Matthew 28 says. He's the bread of life, John 6 says. He's the beloved son of God, found in Matthew 3. He's the bridegroom, Matthew 9. He's the chief cornerstone upon which we build the entire foundation, and that's Psalms 118, 22. He is the deliverer. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. He is faithful and true, Revelations 19. He's called the Good Shepherd, John 10. He's called the Great High Priest, Hebrews 4. He's called the Head of the Church, 
Yeah, Ephesians 1. He's called the Holy Servant, Acts 4. He's called the I Am in John chapter 8. He's called Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah chapter 7. He's called the indescribable gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's called the judge in Acts 10. He's called, get this, the King of Kings. Oh, hey, there have been kings that were great. There have been powerful kings. You can go to the Museum of Science and Industry, and you'll see some artifacts of kings. There are kings, but there is only one king of kings, Lord of lords, master of the universe, almighty God, Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. The Bible says he's the Lamb of God in John chapter 1, the light of the world in John chapter 8, the Lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation chapter 5. He's the Lord of all in Philippians chapter 2, the mediator in 1 Timothy 2, the Messiah in John chapter 1, the mighty one in Isaiah 60, who, who, the one who sets free in John chapter 8, our hope in 1 Timothy, our peace in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you want me to keep going? Okay, he's the prophet in, John, in Mark chapter 6, the redeemer in John, Job chapter 19, the risen Savior in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the sacrifice for our sins, the Savior in Luke chapter 2, the Son of Man in Luke chapter 19, the Son of the Most High in Luke chapter 1, the supreme creator over all the world. Yeah, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah 9 calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When you set out a manger, it's not just a nice little symbol of Christianity. I want you to look at that manger and remember your theology not a cute little baby born but the God of the universe made into a fetus and by the way those three kings weren't really kings they were actually more like wise men astrologists they were people that studied the signs. They were counselors to a king. They came from the east. They had been alerted by Daniel's prophecy 500 years before that a king would be born in Bethlehem. They came because they studied the signs. They looked at the stars. They read holy manuscripts. They came as researchers, looking, traveling, following the star. And when they arrived, they knew, or oh, it had been predicted, that something extraordinary was happening. I'm sure some people thought they were lunatic researchers, you know, those crazy guys that spend too much time in the books, but they were convinced, no, a king is going to be born. Something extraordinary is about to happen. Humanity will be different. Even Herod the king didn't know about it. 
But when they found it, oh, they knew. They knew. The shepherds joined them, not because they were researchers, but because they had an extraordinary experience with angelic beings saying, you dirty, smelly shepherds, you will be, yeah, proclaimers of the good news because Jesus didn't come to the elite, the high, the uppity, the rich, the honorable. He came for the normal people that needed a savior. And you shepherds, yeah, you shepherds need to be there at the birth of King Jesus. So as we celebrate this Christian, this Christmas, as Christians, can I remind you, God has a master plan. He's got a master plan for your life, too. You say, well, Pastor, I wish you would just drop it in so I could kind of figure it out. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. The sovereign God of the universe has a plan for your life. You may be waiting the arrival, anxious, uncertain, but he's still King of kings and Lord of lords. 